Good morning. Our Lord is good. He is good. He is faithful to us today, isn't he? There is a theological theme that is mentioned three times specifically in the scriptures that we're going to focus on today. In Proverbs 3:34, James 4:6 and 1 Peter 5 Five, we see these words, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace or gives grace to the humble. In our passage today, we see the Lord Jesus reflects these same attributes as he dealt with those around him. He shows that he is God incarnate by the way that he deals with the proud and with the humble. He shows that he is a gracious and loving and kind God, man, and yet he's also a confrontational, just Lord at the same time. I want to track this theme down through our passage. We're going to see it. We're going to see both his grace and then his confrontation throughout the passage. The Lord gives unmerited favor to the humble sinner who is repentant, but he gives strong confrontation to the proud, religious, self-righteous ones. This is the way God is. This is the way God has always been. It's the same as Hosea in our passage. God showed himself to be this way, that he was about giving grace to the humble, and yet he also would give judgment to the proud. Today there's two scenes we will cover, two separate scenes, but the same theme runs down through both of them. In both scenes, Jesus gives grace to the humble but is opposed to the proud. The first scene is in verses 9, 9 to 13. This Jesus' interaction with the tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees in that first little scene. And then there's a second scene, Jesus' interaction with the disciples of John. So both scenes, these are two separate themes, themes, or scenes rather, and we are going to track down through both of these scenes the two themes of God giving grace. That was not really well put together, was it? Two scenes with two themes. That is, God gives grace to the humble but he confronts and gives the law to the proud. Let's examine how the Lord displays his grace and opposition to both of these types of people in these scenes. Let's start with the first scene. Jesus' interaction with the tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees. Let's read again, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, 
It is not that not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it mean, this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Notice here, the Lord gives grace to the humble, yet the law, uh, confrontation to the proud. Let's start with the grace of the Lord, though, as he displays it to this despised tax collector. We see the tax collector in verse 9. This is the same person that wrote the book that we're reading, Matthew. A man that used to be a tax collector, but the Lord saves him. He is called out of that life, and he then becomes Matthew, the disciple, the apostle of Jesus, one of the apostles. Jesus took notice, notice in our passage, Jesus took notice of one of the least likely people in the area. Matthew was sitting at the tax collector's booth. I don't know about you guys, but we all try to avoid the tax collector's booth, don't we? These booths were located on a pathway from Syria to northern Egypt in the south, and it was Rome's way of collecting money on that pathway. Everybody took that pathway, everybody was going up and down that road, and everybody knew who was sitting at the tax collector's booth, especially in that area. The tax collectors were viewed as shameful people to the people of their community, especially if they were Jewish tax collectors, like Matthew. The tax collectors were often dishonest, greedy, traitors in the eyes of the people. They didn't care about following the rules and regulations of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were rebellious to all that. All they wanted was the money. They wanted the money for themselves and for the Roman government. They were despised by pretty much everybody. The Romans hated them because they were getting their money too. And the Jews hated them because they were getting their money. It's interesting how people are hated because they want our money, huh? They were hated even more than the IRS of today. No one wants the tax man to come and investigate whether or not we've done everything perfect on our taxes, right? There's a natural fear of the IRS, isn't there? But in Jesus' day... It was worse because the tax men were all crooks. <laughs> they would overcharge to get their pay, and they would overcharge to get more pay. And they did whatever they could to what? Get every dime they could out of you. But here we have Jesus calling a tax man, Matthew, to follow him. Jesus was asking to be shamed by his community. <laughs> Teachers or rabbis of that day were expected to peek or seek the, the good, the upright, the honest, the loyal Israelites for students. That's who they were supposed to look for. But Jesus didn't care about what other people thought of him. He said, hmm, I want that tax collector, Matthew. That's my apostle, that's one of the ones that will go and proclaim the gospel to the world. 
He gave grace to the tax collector of all people, Matthew. Jesus was not concerned if people didn't like that he had a former tax collector as one of his disciples. I'm thankful for that because just right behind crooked tax collectors are vacuum cleaner salesmen. And that's what I was. (laughs) Rainbow. (laughs) It's cool that you have two vacuum cleaner salesmen on your elder board. (laughs) Former vacuum cleaner salesmen, a Kirby and a Rainbow vacuum cleaner salesman. If y'all knew anything about this in the old days, you would lock your door if you saw me or him coming to you. Friends, this is good news for us, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus would give unmerited favor to an unworthy sinner. We're all unworthy sinners, aren't we? We are all tainted and stained by sin as we saw in Sunday school today. Even our best actions outside of Christ are but filthy rags. Being a good person, by the world's estimation, is really useless in the eyes of God. Obviously, Matthew, by the time Jesus calls him, was was not proud of his sin. He recognized he had a problem. So when Jesus called Matthew to follow him, Matthew, the tax collector, got up and left the booth. You understand that he walked away from his employment, (laughs) Walked away from making riches to what? Follow Jesus. It was more important. He followed him. History shows that he even died for him. A persecuted death. Matthew had obviously seen Jesus in the area before, right? He, he must have heard, he must have seen. It was going around that area, everybody knew. We know this from the passages previously. These miracles were happening and he was speaking as one having authority. And it was getting around and the tax collector was hearing it. And the tax collector at that moment must have been aware of his sinfulness and his need of a redeemer. So when Jesus calls, he got up and left, followed him. If we somehow think we are better than others, we are most likely not ready for the Savior's call. If we're righteous in our own eyes, we definitely won't think that we need a deliverer. That's why God often calls the the worst of sinners, like me. If we consider ourselves the moral police of the world, we're not ready to admit we need a Savior and a Redeemer and to turn to Him. But if we're aware of our sinfulness, when and if we see that we are not righteous, if we recognize that we need a Savior, then the call to follow Jesus is like beautiful music. And we say, yeah, I'll go. It's not hard to follow Jesus for those who know they're a sinner in need of a Savior. So Matthew, the tax collector, followed Jesus. Next, Matthew throws a party for his Savior. It appears that Matthew wanted all of his friends from his past to meet the one who gave him hope. This brings us to the next display of God's grace to the humble. Look at verse 10. 
verse 10, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with him, with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Once again, the Lord's grace is on full display here, isn't it? Jesus, the creator of the world, the sovereign of the universe, the one that holds all things together in his hands, was reclining at the table of a house of a former tax collector, sitting with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus was hanging out with many tax collectors and sinners. Not just one tax collector, but now many of these shameful people he's hanging around. The people who rejected God. The people who despised the law. The people who looked at the Pharisees and said, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do. There's an important caveat here for us to think on and make here. It's very important for us to understand. Jesus wasn't doing this to be pragmatic. I want you to listen closely. This is one of those passages, again, that's twisted to promote something wrong in churches. Jesus wasn't hanging out with the sinners so, so he could be like them. He was hanging out with them so he could win them making them think like Him, <laughs> wanting him, them to follow Him, to abandon their tax-collecting, sinning ways, their crooked ways. Now, could they be tax collectors and not crooks? Yes, they could. Jesus didn't become a thief or a swindler in order to win thieves and swindlers. You understand that. You say, well... Why did he hang out with them? It's very clear why he hung out with them. To help them. To give them hope. To give them hope and a way out of this wicked world. If we aren't careful, we'll miss the very, this very important distinction. Jesus didn't go to bars and get drunk so he could win drunks. Do you understand? There's actually people that think that that's what we should do. If you get drunk with somebody and hang out with them, then you might be a little closer to them and they might come around. Well, if you're getting drunk, you're basically with somebody else, you're basically saying Jesus isn't enough. I need some kind of fleshly thing to give me joy. <laughs> that would be the opposite of what this passage is saying. Matthew says... I've found hope. I've found joy. I've found relief from my sin. Come dine with me. I want to introduce you to him. And Jesus hang out, hung out there. Jesus graciously engaged the drunks and offered a better way to them. Did he... Though he was righteous and he could have elevated himself up, but the reality was is he was trying to show them that they needed him. And they were, he was showing grace. 
He offered the joy, and listen closely, of knowing Him, which is better than riches and fleshly desires. There are many who misapply this passage. Please don't, beloved. This is not the point of Jesus' time with the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was there to offer hope out of their sad lives. He was there to offer grace to repentant sinners, offer a way out of their sinful lives. At the same time, we must avoid the wrong reaction of the self-righteous Pharisees, right? They said, if you associate with sinners in any way, you are contaminated or a sinner also. That would be bad too, right? And that is the point of this passage. Be careful. These Pharisees missed the whole point, didn't they? They missed it too. Jesus wasn't sinful by eating a meal with tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't. He was offering hope again. Jesus was saying there is a better way, a better kingdom to come, and in fact, a better king. And I'm here, and I'm better than Caesar. Hang out with me, because I give grace to the humble. The Pharisees had a distorted philosophy of ministry. Do you see how wide the way destruction is, and yet narrow is that way that leads to eternal life. You can either become a legalist, self-righteous, or you can fall off under the other way and be an antinomian and think, I can do whatever I want to do and do it very pragmatically to somehow win people. Both of those are what? Destruction. But Jesus was the way. He had a way of showing grace to those who needed it. The Pharisees had distorted that. It was a religion of works. It was the religion of self-exaltation. But Jesus was calling for repentance and faith in Him. So why was Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners anyway? Why? Well, as Luke's account states... Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And there's a little phrase that's left off in the Matthew passage, but it isn't very important because Jesus said it. Both are true. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, as Jesus says, to repentance in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. He was calling them to what? To repentance. He was calling the tax collectors and sinners to what? Turn and embrace Him. Turn from their sinful ways and embrace Him and enjoy Him. Jesus didn't just go and say, oh, y'all are fine. He called them to turn to Him. And was that much better? Oh, yeah, it was much better. To embrace Christ is better than anything this world has to offer, right? This is Jesus' mission of grace. In verse 13 it states the Lord's mission, and he says it at the end of the 
his quote from Hosea. He says, For I did not come to call the righteous but the sinner. So some application. How do we walk this line of giving grace to the sinner but not participating in their evil deeds? We don't want to be the Pharisees, right? None of us wants to be the Pharisee. But we also don't want to participate in the evil of the world, do we? Anybody ever, any of you in the room, struggle with finding that line? Come on, be honest. You struggle with finding that. How do we do this? Here's the answer. Make much of Christ all the time. Make, Make much of Jesus all the time. That's what Jesus did, do you understand? And he can do that by making much of himself. Why? Because he's the God-man. But we can't. So who do we make much of? Jesus. We don't make much of us. We don't go, well, I don't do that. I'm much better than that. In fact, I say, I'm just like you, but I found someone better than me. And his name is Jesus. I admit to you that sometimes when I'm hanging with sinners, those that are unconverted, and I say, I'm a sinner, but Jesus is great, and he's amazing, and let me tell you about him. You know what they say? I'd rather not talk about him. Let's don't talk about him. But other times, when I am saying I'm nothing and he's everything, they're like, well, that's rare. Because most people make much of themselves. Who is this guy that talks about me and Jesus? Interesting, isn't it? How do we do this? We make much of Christ. And we acknowledge and love people and listen to them and look at them. And then give them hope in the midst of their troubles. And who is the hope? Christ. Beloved, we make much of Jesus wherever we are all the time. Whether we're hanging with Pharisees or we're hanging with sinners. Because it's all about Him. It's not about us. The more we will abide with Him and enjoy Him, He will be the first thing on our lips anyway. The more we make much of Him... Our lives won't be about our self-righteousness, but His righteousness and His grace. We will know, be known as humble servants of Him who just want to share the ones who love us. You know, as a pastor, I, I'm acquainted, acutely acquainted with this problem. I love you guys, but at times I can, uh, not necessarily y'all, but if I'm ever out in the world and they find out I'm a pastor, it is a really difficult spot. Do you know what happens almost immediately when I am hanging around somebody in the world just for a minute or two and they know I'm a pastor? You know what what happens? They immediately start talking about somebody else's sin. It's crazy. 
I'm, I'm sitting here, and all of a sudden somebody says, man, can you believe the way that woman's dressed? Why are you telling me this? Sadly, I think sometimes pastors are viewed by the world as the non-center people, the people that are better than everybody else. Oh, how wrong they are. I love to shock them when they say, look at how that person's acting. I'm much worse than they are. Oh, we're getting another one of those amber alerts. Seems like these things go off all the time, don't they? The whole place is vibrating now. How long will it take? No, we, I, I want to shock them. They say, they act like that. Did you see how that person is? Or my mother did this to me, or my father did this to me, or my cousin did this to me. I like to shock them and say, do you understand that I'm a worse sinner than any of them? Do you understand that I was born with such a wretched, miserable heart, but if it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be going to hell right now? Oh, oh, oh. But that's what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene. And he's talked about and he's uplifted. Self-righteousness is a problem in our world, isn't it? And it flows deep within our souls too still, doesn't it? How often it is easy for us to just pile on, isn't it? Can you believe the way she's dressed? I can't either. Our society is going to hell. It is. But we're participating in it. We're often not giving hope. We're not pointing to Christ. We're not honoring Him. We're elevating ourselves along with the wicked world around us. We look much more like the Pharisees often than the tax collector. Come meet my friend Jesus. Instead we say, yeah, they are some wretched, miserable people, aren't they? Everybody does it, doesn't, don't they? And if you get out of this room and you think you don't do it, you are not listening. And there is a problem with your heart. Just being real. Notice Jesus confronts this self-righteousness. The self-righteous Pharisees. Look at verse 11 to 13. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples... Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was accused by the indirect accusation of the Pharisees. Do you see it? When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples. They said to his disciples. Notice this is the self-righteous people's M.O. 
they often don't directly condemn someone or confront someone. They go behind their back and speak to someone else about their sin. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Do you hear it? Oh, do you hear that? The evil bound up in that. Oh, beloved, listen to me. If you're the one that's always talking about other people's sin, maybe you are that man. Who? Ouch! Get off the toes, Pastor Mike! You're not going to get out of this place without seeing your need for Jesus. Jesus heard it, though. And then he directly confronts them for their wretched accusation. Jesus implies he was there for the sick, not the well. He was a physician of the soul. He was there to help the spiritual broken. He was not there to heal those who didn't think they were sick. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees at the same time he's giving hope and encouragement to those that are in the room. He's saying to the Pharisees, to the self-righteous, you don't think you're sick. You don't think you need me. You think you're good. But I'm here for the ones who need me, not you. Whoa. Youch. That's painful, isn't it? Confrontation. He does it in a way that only he could do. Amazing, isn't it? He, he whacks them with this way of doing it. Like, did I just get hit? Where did it come from? That's the way he is. It's amazing. Humble. He knows how to humble people, doesn't he? Jesus then instructs them, go study your Bible. That's what he just told them. Go read your Bible and study and figure out what this really means. This is shocking truth. This is like two by four up against the head now. You Pharisees who think you know your Bible who think you've got it all figured out, go pull out Hosea 6 and look it up and figure out the context. Study your Bible. You don't know who God is, is what he's saying. You don't know who God is. Because Hosea 6, it's God speaking. And he says, I desire loyal love. Not sacrifice. That's what God was relaying the message. But notice it says, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Oh, beloved, I, I, I honestly, I've thought on this for a whole week. One of you even asked me, what in the world does Hosea 6 relate with this? And I was struggling all week long. And guess when it finally went, oh, oh, now I get it. Finally get it. It was up here. You saw me reach over to Mark and say, hey, I think I finally got it. Strange how that happens. 
Praise God, right? Basically, Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm the one who desires loyal love, not sacrifice. For the Pharisees that what? Thought it was all about sacrifice. Thought it was all about religious duty. Thought it was all about being clean on the outside. When in fact he was... The God-man was right in their midst. And they were accusing the God-man of what? Being unrighteous and unclean. You don't know who God is. And therefore you don't know who I am. And you are dead in your self-righteousness. You need to repent now. You think you're healed when you're really sick. You don't understand that everything you do, all these religious duties, get you nothing. Because your hearts are far from God. And you're not really loyal in your love to Him. Hesed, Old Testament word. Look over at Hosea 6 for a second. This is parallelism. It's translated a little bit different in your Bibles. In Hosea 6, 6. God is rebuking them. Verse 6, it states, For I delight in loyalty. This is Hesed. Loyal love, compassion, a complete commitment to God. Rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What did the people need back in Hosea's day? They needed to really understand who God was. That God wasn't about some external religion. He was about a heart that was committed to Him. And in love with Him, loyal in love to Him. And then Jesus brings this up. And he's confronting the Pharisees and Sadducees back over to Matthew chapter 9. But go learn, verse 13, what this means. I desire compassion, loyalty, and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. The I there is Jesus saying, I'm God. And I'm here. And you better embrace me. And you think you're so religious. And your sacrifices are nothing. And here you are. You don't even realize that the Messiah is coming to the world. The King is coming to the world to save sinners. Because you think you're righteous. And you're better than others. Just like the Jesus... Jesus, just like in Jesus' day and Hosea's day, it's the same today, isn't it? The religious Jews followed the law for external praise and ignored the real needs of people's salvation. Jesus confronts the Pharisees of his day with the same problem. Jesus obviously is pointing to the tax collectors and sinners 
as those who are in need. And the Pharisees were those who thought they didn't need Jesus. <coughs> he explains, because I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Here's a trick question. How many of you in the room are righteous? At this point, in this context, you better not raise your hand. <laughs> you say, well, Mike, you told me about Romans chapter 3. I'm declared right with God, so therefore I'm righteous. Well, here his context is what? Those who think they're righteous in their own eyes. So is Jesus saying literally that the Pharisees are righteous? The answer on that is an emphatic what? No. By no means. Again, context is extremely important. Do you see how you could take the Bible and make it say whatever you wanted to say? At any point, you could do it. You can twist it. It's about our hearts, though, isn't it? It's about what the Spirit's doing in our lives, causing us to see and understand truths. In fact, Jesus is rebuking the self-righteous Pharisees, not saying they have achieved righteousness on their own, but that they thought of themselves as self-righteous and they were proud in that self-righteousness. This is the heart of humanity. This is the heart that is totally depraved. A totally depraved heart will what? Think that it's righteous, that it's good. We all are born thinking much of ourselves. I was told by somebody recently that, no, we learn. We learn to be selfish by watching other people. No, we're born that way. I promise. Why? Because the Bible says it. You say, well, you're going to trust in that ancient book? Yep. Because God wrote it through man and it. Perfect, right? He knows how to examine my heart and know what's going on when I was a baby better than I do. Everybody agree? This is our hearts. We think much of ourselves. We find ways of elevating our good deeds over our bad ones to somehow justify ourselves. When we do this, we say, in effect, I don't need a Savior. That's what we're saying. There's only one way to God, beloved, and it's humbly embracing Jesus as Savior and Lord daily for the rest of our lives. You say, once I get converted, do I need to continue to do this? Oh, yes, you do. As long as you carry around that body of death, beloved, you're going to fight these same sinful tendencies. Everybody in this room has probably fought this same tendency today. And if not, you might not have been looking close enough at your heart. That includes me. The Pharisees were more sick than Matthew, the tax collector. But they just didn't realize it. Matthew got up and followed because God had worked in him and given him grace. The Pharisees thought they were good when in fact they were dead men walking. Jesus' words should have humbled them, but instead they couldn't get it. 
They chose their righteousness over Christ's righteousness. Can you imagine? This is how foolish we are. Why would we do this? For many of the Pharisees who failed to repent, they will pay for this for eternity. Remember, friends, God gives grace to the humble but is opposed to the proud. If you think you're good, you are really sicker than you know. No. Weak. No week should go by where we don't all see sin and turn to Christ. No week. I would argue every day. If we're not seeing our need of him, then there is a major problem. If we aren't seeing our sin, our view of God is small and our view of ourselves is big. Let's go to the second point. Second scene. I'll get through most of it. Notice Jesus' interaction with the disciples of John. 14. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will, then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk clothes on an old garment, for the path pulls away from the garment, and worse tear results. Nor do people put new wines into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Again, the two disciples are in view in this scene, the two, two displays rather, are in view in this scene. There is the grace shown to his disciples, the bridegroom's disciples, and the law shown to the proud. Here it's a little bit more subtle. It's a little, you have to look closely, but it's here too. Let's start first with the proud, the self-righteous, fasters. I don't know if that's a word. Is that even a word? I used it. The self-righteous fasters. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Listen closely. It is not a good thing when we find ourselves siding with the self-righteous people. Do you understand? These disciples of Jesus were men who failed to get the full message of John the Baptist, didn't they? John the Baptist had called for repentance in light of the king coming. Get ready, the king is coming, that's what John said. But they were asking the king, why do we fast but your followers don't fast? Ooh. I don't think they were ready. What do you think? This scares me. I don't know about you, but this scares me. People that were listening to John the Baptist say, repent and believe, get ready because the king's coming. They asked the king himself, 
Why do we fast with the Pharisees and your disciples don't? Their thinking was obviously twisted, right? John preached, turn from your sins and get ready to meet King Jesus or King. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Remember, he said that. And yet they somehow come up and ask him, why do I fast and along with these Pharisees, but your followers don't? I think there's a subtle hint of pride here. Self-righteousness. Listen, beloved, if repentance doesn't lead to the joy of knowing Christ and following Him, then there's a problem. We may be vulnerable of self-righteous penance, cleaning ourselves up and doing acts to some way, same way look good enough so that God will accept us. Mourning, fasting, doing these things in order for somehow I will be bad enough and grovel enough that somehow God will love me and accept me when he comes. I think, do you see? The Pharisees were self-righteous in their religious activities, but even the disciples of John could fall into that trap. They had the Messiah. The bridegroom, they were talking to him. (laughs) They were talking to him. First of all, why were they still called disciples of John if they were talking to Jesus? Why didn't they say, what am I doing? He's here. (laughs) They should have been rejoicing with the other attendants of the bridegroom. Instead, they were saying, I'm with the Pharisees in their practice of self-righteousness. Whoo! The words from the Sermon on the Mount apply so well here, don't they? Remember Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has just spoken and said these words, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And he continues in 6.16 by saying, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, your Father who knows who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But what did they do? (laughs) They came to the God-man and said, Hey, I'm fasting. In effect, it should have done what? It should have... Wait! You understand? He already knew you were fasting. It's the God-man. They didn't get it. I don't think they were converted yet. At the same time, Jesus introduces the ones who he was giving grace to. The joyful attendance to the bridegroom. Oh, look at verse 15. I love this verse. And Jesus said to them, 
to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from away from them, then they will fast. What's the mourning and the fasting really all about for the attendants of the bridegroom? Not being in the presence of the bridegroom anymore. Oh, listen, beloved. Listen closely. Grace is evidenced by our joyful, abiding relationship with Christ. When we are enjoying Christ, we stand out. Even when we mourn, we do not mourn without hope. We mourn knowing what? We have Christ and lo, I am with you till the end of the day, till the end of the age, right? There's such an important point for us to get here. What causes us to mourn? For the true believer, it's a break in relationship with our Savior. Listen closely. Why do I repent daily? Why am I constantly finding my way turning back to Christ? Because it's the sadness, the mourning that comes from a relationship that is not enjoyed. The fellowship is not being enjoyed. A real relationship with Christ is one that we enjoy Him and His presence with us all the time. All the time we abide in Him. We rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We abide in Him. We love Him. We seek Him. We know Him. We do our devotion so we can learn more about Him. He's our satisfying Savior. We delight in Him, don't we, beloved? Do I fast? I'm not going to answer that question. I can tell you this. Based on this passage, I just want to rejoice more. I need to enjoy my Savior more. Is this world hard? Yes. The hard part is the part where I'm not in His presence right now. I'm not in glory right now. I'm not seeing the fullness of His glory now, are you? So is there mourning? Yes. But ultimately, when I fast, if I fast, I fast to get closer to Him so that I can experience the joy of knowing Him. This is what the attendants of the bridegroom were doing face to face with Him. It would have made no sense in the world if the disciples would have been fasting, would it? I got Jesus next to me. I'm walking around. We're talking. (laughs) The creator of the universe is standing next to me. Oh, hey, let's go without a meal, Jesus. What are you talking about? You've got your greatest delight standing next to you. Bask in his glory. Walk around and listen to every word he says. You have the words of eternal life. Where else will we go? 
folks. It's not about how good we are, is it? It's not about how much we clean up the outside. It's not about how much my wife does or doesn't please me. Ultimately, it's about my joy in the Lord. It's about Him. So please, beloved, take note of this. Don't come to get a little bit of Jesus on Sunday. Spend time with him every day. Worship him. Praise him. Enjoy him. For he is in us. He loves us. And he's going to return one day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your kindness towards us sinners. Oh, you give so much grace, so much grace to show us who you are and to remind us that you're not about how much we clean up the outside of ourselves and how much we make everything work and look good. You're just about us enjoying you. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to enjoy you. Help us to delight in you. And then help us, Lord, to proclaim you to the world, offering hope to the sick, to the lost, to the desperately needy. Keep us humble, Father. Keep us on our knees, Lord. Keep us abiding in you. We love you. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this in his name.